much credit, by the way. I don't know how long this is going to be, but probably not uh, very much so, but I did find it to be interesting. And um, so if you still believe in Santa, I don't know. You, uh, you, we're we're going to be talking about some stuff anyway, so uh, we'll see. My, uh, get my... There we go. Okay, so legend or myth? Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit tonight. Um, so, a couple of things about good old Saint Nick here. Um, first thing is is the existence of Saint Nicholas. It is not disputed at all by any credible historic uh, documents. So uh, the more I got into this, I'd really never paid that much attention to it, to be honest. And then I thought. Um, you know, the more I started to read, I thought, okay, there's a, there's a lot to be gleaned here. Um, so, but there's no uh, uh, historic documents that say he, he didn't exist. Um, the earliest accounts uh, of his life that were written centuries after his death, which uh, is, is no surprise. And because of this, many of his recorded actions contain quite a bit of hyperbole about some of his deeds. And we'll talk about a couple of those here in just a little bit. Um, he does have a church in Myra, uh, and I think that's called the Demir uh, Antalya uh, province in Turkey. It's named after him. Uh, that church, the church still exists to this day, and uh, this church also preserves an early written mention of him and is home to a sarcophagus of his remains, which uh, I think is quite interesting. There's a lot of people who travel there, and it is a uh, destination uh, for, uh, I guess, uh, people that are interested in that, and even in, in quite a bit in Catholicism, there's a lot of people who really follow uh, St. Nicholas. So, um, who is St. Nicholas really in, in, real, in real life? He is known as St. Nicholas of Myra, also as Nicholas of Bari. Um, he is said to uh, be born from a wealthy uh, Christian family of Greek descent from the maritime city of Myra in Asia Minor. Um, which is, again, modern-day Turkey, during the time of the Roman Empire uh, in, uh, in March 15th of 270 A.D. Uh, his date of death is recorded as December 6, uh, 343 A.D. at the age of 73. All right. So, there are some really wild things that he is credited with doing. And uh, just, I keep having to look behind me because I'm not sure if my slides are working. But anyway, uh, so one of the things, probably not so wild, he saved three soldiers from wrong execution. It's recorded that um, he was, uh, you know, that's one of the things that he did. I, I couldn't find, a, I tried to find out a little bit more about that. I'm not sure uh, what soldiers or what war, but um, uh, he is, he's definitely uh, credited with that. It is said he calmed a storm at sea. Um, it is said, <laughs> this is one of, this is not my favorite, but it's one of my favorites. Chopped down a demon-possessed tree. I'm not really sure about that one, but, uh, but they, it is recorded that he, he chopped down a demon-possessed tree. Um, so it, I have a lot of questions about that. First of all, how do you, how can you, uh, how can you know if a tree is demon-possessed? I have no idea, but apparently he saved a lot of people by chopping this tree down. I don't, Aha, uh -huh, there you go. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe. Maybe. Um, something kind of gruesome, though, 
It is said he resurrected three children who had been murdered and pickled in brine by a butcher planning to sell them as pork during a famine. So I was like, man, that's, that's pretty gruesome. Um, but uh, again, this is one of his, uh, one, one of his recorded deeds. Uh, for sure, I think two of these, I think the storm at sea and the resurrected three, you know, to, in order to become or achieve sainthood, uh, you have to have uh, certain miracles under your belt. And I think these, these are attributed to that. This is not all, but these are just some of the things that were mentioned that uh, he is credited with uh, on here. So now... Two acts he is most famous for, and this is where we're going to start to understand um, that, uh, you know, how, how this legend that everyone knows of St. Nick uh, came around. Uh, so he rescued three girls from being forced into prostitution by dropping a sack of gold coins through the window of their house each night for three nights so that their uh, uh, father could pay a dowry for each one of them. So this is the, this is the original legend that began uh, what we know now today is uh, this this jolly fellow who drops off gifts at night. This where this started uh, is with these deeds that he is credited with here, with helping. And, and uh, it is said also that he um, uh, did this more than once. This is uh, there's one particular occasion. It doesn't give a lot of detail about it, but we but it is said that that's that's one of the main things. And, of course, uh, the other thing that he is known for is what uh, Pastor Danny alluded to uh, just a minute ago, where we have <laughs> uh, the, uh, the incident that happened at the Council of Nicaea. And um, so basically what happened here, and uh, I'm going to read a little bit of an account here in just a minute, but we'll, I'm just going to go through this kind of quickly. But in uh, 325, at the first council of Nicaea, he was said to be a staunch opponent of Arianism and a devoted supporter of Trinitarianism. And I'll explain that a little bit uh, whenever I read this article here, exactly what that is. But the legend says that this, uh, this council, that Nicholas uh, was stripped of his bishophood and imprisoned for slapping another attending bishop, a heretic named Arius. Arius was promoting Arianism, which again, this, is, this has to do with uh, basically, uh, as best I can understand it, that had to do with uh, uh, Jesus not being part of the Trinity. Um, and so uh, Nicholas got really upset and he, during this meeting, and uh, he had heard about all he could stand. And so he just, he got up and, and basically slaps Arius while he's there speaking. And it made him very unpopular. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, Nicholas got really angry uh, and refused to listen to another word. So what, what I want to do real quick is I'm going to read, uh, I actually downloaded this little uh, account from the St. Nicholas Center, which is, they are all things about St. Nick. And um, so I'm just going to read this account really quick uh, just to sort of give you some background on what happened. So it says, in A.D. 325, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea, the very first ecumenical council. More than 300 bishops came from all over the Christian world to debate the nature of the Holy Trinity. It was one of the early church's most intense theological questions. Arius from Egypt was teaching that Jesus the Son was not equal to God the Father. Arius forcefully argued his position at length and the bishops listened respectfully. 
As Arius vigorously continued, Nicholas became more and more agitated. Finally, he could no longer bear what he believed was essential, uh, what he believed was essential being attacked. The outraged Nicholas got up, crossed the room, and slapped Arius across the face. The bishops were shocked. It was unbe unbelievable that a bishop would lose control and be so hot-headed in such a solemn assembly. They brought Nicholas to Constantine, and Constantine said, even though it was illegal for anyone to strike another in his presence, in this case, the bishops themselves must determine the punishment. The bishops stripped Nicholas of his garments and chained him and threw him in jail. That would keep Nicholas away from the meeting, and when the council ended, a final decision would be made about his future. Nicholas was ashamed and prayed for forgiveness, though he did not waver in his belief uh, now, this is where the story, I, I was good with the story up until this point here. But anyway, so it says, uh, during the night, Jesus and Mary, his mother, appeared asking, why are you in jail? And he says, because of my love for you, Nicholas replied. And Jesus gave the book of the Gospels to Nicholas. <laughs> Mary gave him uh, an omiphoron. I don't know what that is. I have no clue. But anyway, it says, so Nicholas would again be dressed in, as a bishop. That's some sort of garment, I guess. Now at peace, Nicholas studied the scriptures for the rest of the night. When the jailer came in the morning, he found the chains loose on the floor, and Nicholas dressed in his bishop's robes, quietly reading the scriptures. When Constantine was told of this, the emperor asked that Nicholas be freed, and Nicholas was then fully reinstated as bishop of Myra. And the council of Nicaea agreed with Nicholas's views, deciding the question uh, against Arius, the work of the council produced by the Nicene Creed, which is to this day many Christians repeat weekly when they stand and say what they believe. So that's uh, supposedly the account of what happened with the exception of uh, the, the part that gets disputed there is whether he was seen in the jail by Jesus and Mary, which we, we all know probably didn't happen. Uh, so anyway, the next, you know, how do we go from you know, the image of St. Nick to what we know today. Um, well, uh, Nicholas made his first inroads into American popular culture towards the end of the 18th century. Uh, in December of 1773 and again in 1774, a New York newspaper reported that groups of Dutch families had gathered to honor the anniversary of his death. And the name uh, Santa Claus evolved from Nick's Dutch name, or Nick, Dutch nickname, Sinterklaas, or Claus, a, a shortened form of Saint Nicholas, uh, Dutch for Saint Nicholas. In 1804, John Pintard, a member of the New York Historical Society, distributed these little woodcuts, and basically it's just these little wooden medallions uh, of Saint Nicholas at the Society's annual meeting. And the back, background of the engraving contains now familiar Santa images, including stockings filled with toys and fruit uh, hung over a fireplace. Um, let's see. Finally, let's see. Yes. One more. There we go. Um, finally, in 1822, Clement Clark Moore, an Episcopal minister, wrote a long Christmas poem for his three daughters entitled An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas, more popularly known as Twas the Night Before Christmas. Um, Moore's poem, which she was initially hesitant to publish due to the frivolous nature of the subject, is largely responsible for a modern image of Santa, uh, Santa Claus as a right jolly old elf with a portly figure and the supernatural ability to ascend a chimney with a mere nod of his head, 
Although some of Moore's imagery was probably borrowed from other sources, his poem helped popularize the now familiar image of a Santa Claus who flew from house to house on Christmas Eve in a miniature sleigh led by eight flying reindeer to leave presents for deserving children. Um, and uh, so then we have an account of a visit from St. Nicholas created a new and immediately uh, popular American icon, which is who we know of Santa Claus today. Um, so there is uh, some really interesting roots. Um, I have found there's quite a bit of uh, dissension is in terms of what, how much of this is believed in terms of, uh, of you know, the account of, of Nicaea. There are several that said that uh, his name is not on the, uh, I guess, the, the attendance list of the bishops who were there, of the 300 that were there. Uh, but uh, some argue that one of the reasons why that is is because once he slapped Arius, they wanted to ban him permanently. He, the bishops were going to try to ban him permanently from ever being able to show up again there, and they originally stripped him of his bishopship. Therefore, his name was erased from the from the roll, and that's how come uh, he's not officially on there. Um, but it, it is interesting that, um, and there's actually quite a bit more uh, that morphed into this image that we know of today, but it, that's where it started, is uh, with the poem, The Night Before Christmas. I never knew that until I read a couple of accounts of that being uh, where, it, where our understanding of who he is originally came from, and then it sort of morphed. Uh, there were, the, with the eight uh, reindeer and the sleigh there were some there are different layers that got added to, to that through the years uh to to bring us to what we know uh today so anyway that's 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 it it wasn't very long but um uh hopefully you found it interesting um i definitely think that the original saint nick is somebody i could definitely respect because i would definitely be one to defend the deity of jesus christ and uh, you know, the fact that that was something that he did says a lot, I think, about his character. So, uh, so definitely somebody that we can respect uh, as, a, as a, a saint, if you want to call him that. But anyway, thank you uh, for the opportunity, Pastor Danny, to get up here and share my little uh, uh, presentation about St. Nicholas. And uh, hopefully you learned a little bit more about where he came from. Thank you, Matt, uh, for that informative yet brief uh presentation i was expecting you to go a little longer i i know you you got things you, you can definitely talk about but i do have two questions uh number one what happened to our zeal for right theology you know like like saint nicholas you know if that is true you know to go ahead and just stand up for right doctrine and be unafraid but and the other question is and this one might be more for brock Brock, how can demon-possessed trees? Thoughts? Demon-possessed trees. Thoughts? <laughs> That's all right. Brock, what happened to the days when I would ask you questions and you would have like these magnificent dissertation uh, answers? It was a plant. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, for sure. Kutsu. You know, that's all that's the state plant and state, you know, everything here in Alabama. 
So, no, I just had to, you know, Lord of the Rings, they have that tree scene, you know, where the trees are talking and everybody wishes that scene was not in the movie because it was like an hour's long. But that's probably the funniest thing from what we were talking about with St. Nick is the demon-possessed tree. It's like, how do you know, like you said, how do you know it's demon-possessed? You know, it's just interesting. I don't know. Aaron, thoughts? (laughs) Now, I do know... (laughs) I do know in the Old Testament, it talks about Ashtaroth poles, and it talks about the groves, and those were uh, uh, pagan idols that they made out of trees. Maybe it was something alluded to that. I'm not sure, but that, that was always comical for me. So, with the plenty of time that I have tonight that I wasn't expecting to have tonight, so, but uh, we're going to look at really briefly the probability of Christmas, and for some of us, this may be just a refresher uh, for others of us. Uh, hopefully this is just wow information. You know, when we look at December 25th is coming up pretty soon, and, and we're trying to hustle and bustle to go ahead and get the last remaining presents, you know, for the people on our Christmas list and, and things of that nature. It's very easy to go ahead and overlook the fact of the miracle that is the first Christmas, the miracle of the first Advent. And that's really what I want to talk about this evening, probability of Christmas. In other words, what is the statistical probability that a man would fulfill certain prophecies of the coming of Christ? And uh, like I said, for some, this may be refresher. For others, hopefully this is enlightening and and this is an awe factor. So the very first thing is I want to just step through some Old Testament prophecies that talks about and has to do only with the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Brock had spoke last week about uh, the virgin birth and different facets and things like that. And so what I'd like to do with the time that I have, and I wasn't sure how much time I would have, so I did build this into sort of a game as well. And so for each one of these prophecies, I'd be curious who knows the book, the passage that these prophecies are found And so for the first one, just yell it out. The virgin birth, where is this prophecy found in the Old Testament? Brock, you can't answer. (laughs) Anybody else? Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9. There is a prophecy of Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor. But this one is Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. I know we talked a little bit about Emmanuel last time as far as meaning God with us, and it was a characteristic of Jesus Christ. And so this was a prophecy. I think Brock did a marvelous job last week explaining the difference between Ahaz and like the future prophecy 700 years after Isaiah. And how, how many of you really like the way that he illustrated it through this scene up here where he had me and him, like he wanted me to be disinterested in him. That was pretty pretty interesting. Huh? That was a great teaching method. So, well, this one, I, this one, I'm not really going to count for tonight, but in Matthew chapter 12 or 1 verse 23, we do see the account of angel, angel Gabriel come to Mary and foretell of the conception there with Jesus coming. And so this is the first prophecy of the coming of Christ uh, that we're going to look at tonight. Now, not only was the virgin going to give birth, but also Messiah was going to be born out of all places in a small little town of Bethlehem. So, how many people know the book that this prophecy is found in? Yeah, yell it out. 
I said the book. I'm getting numbers. You know? Yeah. Micah 5.2. Now, how many people can recite the verse? At least the first three or four words. Brock? Oh, close. <laughs> but thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, doubtless speaking of the Messiah's birth that's going to happen in the town of Bethlehem. Now, there's a couple of verses in the New Testament that actually speak of this fulfillment here. So there's another prophecy that Messiah had fulfilled. What about the infanticide? The fact that there would be a mass murderer of a lot of babies uh, during the time Jesus was born. So do we remember what book of the Bible this may be in, in the Old Testament? Wow, I got Brock too. I'll give you a hint. Brock, it's close to the New Covenant prophecy. The major prophet major prophet, he's considered the, he wrote Lamentations. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice, voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, uh, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. I believe this was uh, also talking about Israel and the children and captivity of Babylon. Babylon. But then here we see that Matthew says, then was fulfilled that which was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet when Herod had sent out to go ahead and murder all the babies that were two years and younger. This was because, remember, that the wise men were supposed to go back to King Herod and report where they found baby Jesus because he, quote-unquote, wanted to worship him. And so since the wise men were told to go another way, then King Herod sent out a decree to kill all the babies in the area that were two years and younger in hopes to kill Messiah. This is where you get the idea of the, or the revelation that Joseph was told in the dream to take him, Mary, and Jesus and flee to Egypt for a period of time. Had they stayed, Messiah may have been killed. But because God is sovereign and God is in control of everything and God is knowledgeable of everything, Messiah was spared. And so there was one. All right. So now we're going to go into lineage. And so we talked about his birth being of a virgin, his birth being in Bethlehem, his birth causing uh, King Herod to murder hundred, probably hundreds, if not thousands of babies under two years old. And so now we're going to actually look at the lineage of Jesus Christ that was foretold in the Old Testament. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to start out wide. We're going to zero in more like on a center target and a bullseye or a dartboard. We're going to go wide and then narrow it in. And so here we have a prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. What book of the Bible would this be from? Genesis. What chapter would this be from? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I would bless them. Well, the original, while bless them that bless you and curse them and curse you, and in, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And there is a prophecy about the Messiah that would be coming through the lineage of Abraham. You also get the Abrahamic covenant foretold also in Genesis chapter 15. I believe it's in verse number six. Then he was told out of Abraham, Messiah would come through the line of Isaac. 
And so which book of the Bible would this be found in? Genesis. Genesis chapter 26. And I will make thy seed, speaking to Isaac, to multiply as the stars of heaven, and give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. You see a key phrase in there? And unto thy seed will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, realize, Abraham was promised it would be his seed, seed coming from him and Sarah, not him and Hagar. And so here with Isaac, Isaac was promised this seed and not Ishmael. You understand the difference between uh, Judaism and Islam? The big division is the fact that Muhammad claims that the line of the promised person, promised child, comes through Ishmael and not Isaac. So they believe that actually uh, Protestants changed uh, the name from Ishmael to Isaac and stole Isaac to make it become a Jewish person, as opposed to Ishmael being more of an Arab. And so not only would he come from the line of Abraham, he would also come through the line of Isaac. Pop quiz, who is Isaac's son? And Esau, right? And so now we're told he's going to come through not only Abraham, not only Isaac, but now he's going to come through Jacob. So we're sort of narrowing down this family that he's going to come from. So what book of the Bible is this prophecy found in? Genesis. What chapter? Genesis 28, 14. Speaking to Jacob, and I shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, to the north, and the south. And in thee, and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So now Messiah was prophesied to come through Abraham, come through Isaac, come through Jacob. And with Jacob, it wasn't prophesied with any of his brothers. Now we're narrowing it down more. It would be Jacob solely and none of these others. Not only through Jacob, now you get the tribes. It's foretold that he would come through Judah. What book of the Bible is this found in? Now we're starting to learn, right? It's found in what chapter? Did you say 73? 49? 49, of course you get it right, Brock. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him Shiloh shall be the gathering of the people be. So this is another prophecy that Messiah come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. Remember, Judah had 11 other brothers. So again, we're narrowing it down into this family lineage. Then he's going to come from the line of Jesse. Where is this prophecy found? Not Genesis? We've left Genesis now, right? Oh, man, I didn't get anybody. Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And so Jesse is in 1 Samuel and David and Goliath, things like that. But when I was looking at Old Testament prophecies, this passage came up in seven, around 780 B.C. or so. And so now we're getting down even narrower. So we got Jesse. Now out of Jesse's sons, it would be through the line of King David. So what prophecy would King David be from? Isaiah 9, 7, of his increase, 
this may not be the right one. Well, yeah, this may not be the right one, but it does say that upon the throne of David and his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so when we keep narrowing this down, it's fascinating to see that Abraham to Isaac, it wasn't Ishmael, Isaac to Jacob, it wasn't Esau, and then it was from Jacob to Judah, it wasn't the others, it was from Judah to Jesse, wasn't the others, from Jesse to David, wasn't the others, and then we get down to the birth of Messiah. And so there's a lot more that we can go over, I didn't expect to have two hours, I'm just kidding that, but uh, so this is sort of the lineage that we looked at from the Old Testament prophecies that foretold what families he would be coming from. Now, this spans, if I remember correctly, over a thousand years or so, something like that, 600,000 years, somewhere around there. During that time, there's been a lot of division. There's been a lot of judgment upon the people as well, upon God's promised people, and yet God still faithfully fulfilled his promise, regardless of the fact that his children went astray and rebelled. He still faithfully kept his word. And so for me, that's amazing because no matter what you and I do and we rebel, we go astray, whatever the case is, that God is faithful to maintain his word. And so that gives me a lot of solace, a lot of peace. But when we're looking at the prophesied lineage, we read, and I think Pastor Ken had went over this uh, in the life of Messiah and other aspects as well, where we get the genealogy. And I think Brock talked about this last week with the Jeconiah curse, where we see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, David, and then Messiah. And so when we look at this, not only was this one person supposed to be born by a virgin in Bethlehem, his birth was going to cause the, uh, a king to kill a whole lot of innocent babies. He was also going to supposed to come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, and David. So we have nine prophecies there. All speaking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Nine prophecies. What do you think the probability of one person fulfilling all nine of those prophecies based off the entire population of the world at the time? And this is where I'm not a statistics guy. You know, I had to ask Oscar, you know, hey, what is this with the 10th to the 8th power, 12th power, whatever, you know, does this make sense, whatever the case is? But when we're looking at all this, there's a, a book that was put out. Many of you may already be familiar with this by Peter Stoner and Robert Newman. And they talk about the statistical probability of one person fulfilling at least eight of the major prophecies of Jesus Christ. Now, not necessarily talk about the Christmas prophecies, but because Christmas, we want to look at the first coming prophecies. But in one person fulfilling just eight of the major prophecies of Christ. Now, there's a debate as far as whether there's like 30 prophecies or 300 prophecies. There's a debate as far as how many prophecies of Christ are in there. But they look statistically at only eight of them, and what is the probability of one person fulfilling it? They came to the conclusion, the fact that that's one in whatever number that is for an individual to fulfill those prophecies. And so in other words, 
You take 17 zeros. How many people want to give a, try to guess at how to pronounce that number? What is that number? 100,000, million, billion, trillion, zillion. Would that be zillion? 100 zillion? So that's one in 100 zillion possibility for somebody to fulfill eight prophecies. And there's over 40 prophecies in, in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ. There's, we didn't even talk about the aspects of, well, I guess I'll get to it in a minute, but he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's going to be crucified. All these things, we just looked at eight prophecies, and they say that statistically that's one in a hundred zillion chance of that happening. So imagine if you do, okay, if it's one in an eight, let's times that. One in 16, right? 16 prophecies. Now what's 100 zillion times 100 zillion? I don't know. I mean, you can just keep making up words, right, to create numbers, but you get the idea. And we're talking about at least 40 prophecies of Messiah. What they say in their book is the fact that if you were to take a silver dollar, you remember those things that we used to have that no longer does anybody accept coins anymore? But those silver dollars that are bigger than quarters, they said if you were to take a silver dollar and you would line the entire state of Texas with these silver dollars side by side, you could put, for that number, two feet's worth of these silver dollars over the entirety of the state of Texas. They, they point that out that that is how much 100 zillion is. So if you had 100 zillion silver dollars, it would be two feet's worth entiring, uh, spanning the entire state of Texas. Now, they said, if you were to go ahead and blindfold somebody, and you said, go out there, and you go pick out this one silver dollar that I put a check mark on, or I marked. There's this one specific silver dollar out of all these out there in the line of Texas. I want you to find that one. They said they would have a one in a 10 to the 17th power of finding that one silver dollar. Remember, you have the entire state of Texas two feet deep of silver dollars. Now you're blindfolding them and telling them, find this one silver dollar without using your eyesight. They said that is the probability of fulfilling eight prophecies by Messiah. It's astounding. Put in way of perspective, the biggest lottery that I found uh, that you can win here in the States has a one in 176 million opportunity to win. One in 176 million. As opposed to one in 100 thousand zillion you have that much of a greater possibility of winning the jackpot and dare i say more than once in your lifetime than for messiah to fulfill just eight prophecies of the old testament we're only talking about eight we're not talking about 40 or more eight that's how impossible to man it is you see, again, that's not talking about his dying a death, the crucifixion, the fact that they were going to part his clothes while he was on the cross, that he was going to be betrayed for the price of a slave, that he was going to ride into town in Jerusalem on a donkey. It's not talking about any of those. It's talking about the fact 
We only looked at the Christmas ones. This is what spoke to me, though, when we're talking about prophecies. Why did he come? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There is a one in a hundred zillionth possibility chance of Messiah to fulfill just those eight prophecies. And he did all that to do this. That's what Christmas is about. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man, he didn't come to be ministered, but he came to give his life a ransom for many. You see, that's prophetic. Jesus wasn't on a cross at that point. He, his sole purpose for being born in the manger in Bethlehem, fulfilling all those prophecies in Scripture, wasn't just to say, Hey, I did the impossible. He did all that to die on the cross for you and me. You see how astounding and how marvelous and and amazing it is when we look at statistics. And if the guy's numbers are accurate, that is a one in a hundred zillionth chance, just eight. But what's more amazing, as C.S. Lewis said, is the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Now, it's marvelous, and it's amazing, and it's astounding to see, okay, let's look at 40 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. How bigger of a number is that one in 100 zillion going to get? But to realize the fact that God of all creation that took on flesh, that Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We can get amazed and astounded at at statistics and numbers, but so many times we overlook the fact on, he did that for you. He did that for me. You see? So this Christmas, you know, when we looked at the virgin birth, and we looked at, okay, Jesus coming through the line of David and the line of Abraham and all these things, and we looked at the fact that, yes, you know, is it, is it believed that Christ, Christ, Christmas came out of pagan origins? That's what some people believe, but Aaron did a good job refuting that and arguing how Jesus is not the same as pagan gods. And when you look at their historical, quote-unquote historical information, you find that there's no artifacts for it. And so the fact that Christmas wasn't born out of paganism, that then you looked at Brock's then you look at Matt St. Nicholas, an aspect of the burden to stand up for theology and truth and, and to love on people and show the love of Christ, to be able to free girls out of, you know, enslavement, if you will. And then we look at the statistics of it all. And this Christmas, you know, we could go out there and we can debate pagan, paganism and Christmas. We can debate, oh, we just stole the Sol Invictus day that was the winter solstice. We can argue about St. Nick all day long. We can argue about the virgin birth and whether the Jeconiah curse is, 
is relevant in the Matthew's genealogy and stuff like that. We can argue all that. We can argue the statistical impossibility of Jesus fulfilling eight of hundreds of prophecies. But I don't want us to overlook the fact on what we should be arguing is the fact that Jesus Christ became man, so like C.S. Lewis said, so that man can become a son of God. And that's what it's about. It's about his first steps to walk down the Via Dolorosa for you and me. And so, while I hope that the entire, you know, presentations that everybody did is uplifting, encouraging, equipping, because that's what apologetics is, equipping. Sometimes, you know, I find myself more passionate about theology than I do about evangelism. We got such an opportunity right now at Christmas to do some amazing evangelizing. Tell them, what is the meaning of Christmas? Oh, did you know that? You know, it was not born out of paganism. Oh, you know, virgin birth. Oh, you know, St. Nicholas. Oh, the impossibility of the prophecies. But all that doesn't matter if he didn't die on the cross for you. So let me tell you about the greatest miracle and marvel of all. And so for this year, and, you know, we got 14 minutes left, but for this season to wrap these things off, I, I, uh, I just wanted to go ahead and share this, some astounding information, not only statistics, but also his love for the entire world. And so, find somebody to tell the love with, share the love with, tell them about the inc incarnation of Christ. All right. Any questions about any of this? Brock. Would you like to do that? There you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. So for those that are online, the meaning of Shiloh wasn't a, a name, a place, or anything, but it, it was a, a term to say, he's who, whose right it is to rule and to be on the throne. And, and in this case, it was the Messiah because it was his right and then fulfilled Davidic covenant and his kingdom. And so I appreciate that, Brock. You know, Definitely. So, anybody else? Any other questions, comments, critiques, concerns? No? All right. Well, if not, I just I hope you guys enjoyed the apologetics session, if you will. And, and next Sunday night, we're not going to have an evening service. Christmas Eve, we will have a morning service. Wednesday services are still on schedule. All that's still the same. And uh, so just we'll see you guys, Lord willing, on Wednesday. Life of Messiah, I'm, I'm assuming. And with that, I want to go ahead and close the word of prayer. And then... If you want to stick around and chat, great. Otherwise, we just ask that you get your kids after they're done and then take them home, unless you want them to sleep here at the church building, which is okay. Doors will be locked. So, God, I thank you just again for tonight. And it's just, it's wonderful looking at the statistics and the impossibility of somebody fulfilling all these prophecies. And yet, not only did you fulfill them, you chose to fulfill them to save fallen mankind. Uh, you've given us grace, you've shown us love, you've given us mercy when we didn't deserve it. And so, Lord, I pray that this Christmas season that we would go ahead and reveal the same mercy, love, and grace to those around us and just take this opportunity to tell them the real meaning for Christmas. I thank you for everybody that had a hand in just this apologetic session and just pray you would just uh, bless them for their time and their efforts and their diligence to study. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen.